This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You can power up your playtime with the Nintendo Switch system, the home of Mario and Friends. You may discover exciting surprises with Mario, Princess Peach, and more in Super Mario Bros. Wonder or challenge friends to a race in Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. You can head to Nintendo.com to learn more about the Nintendo Switch system. Games and systems sold separately. The U.S. has more confirmed cases of the deadly coronavirus than any other country in the world, surpassing even China and Italy. Since we were with you last night, cases nationwide have surged, growing by more than 17,000 in just one day. Sadly, more than 1,000 people in the U.S. have died. Another staggering number, nearly 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. That's more than the population of Chicago. And this graph says it all. Since 2000, weekly claims have been in the hundreds of thousands. Last week's numbers are off the chart. Today should have been opening day for America's favorite pastime, Major League Baseball. Instead, tonight the president is talking about reopening the economy, saying the country, quote, has got to get back to work. The president says he will be giving states new guidelines on social distancing, getting some people back on the job in places that haven't been hard hit by the virus. Our team is covering every angle of this crisis, and Mark Strassman leads us off from just outside Atlanta. And Mark, is it possible that those jobless numbers could be even higher? Well, here's what you have to consider, Nora. As grim as those numbers are, the reality is likely worse. America's latest jobless numbers hit like an overnight gut punch. Candace DeLong lost both her jobs in Los Angeles. Scared for the way life is going to be after? Yes. If we're going to have jobs to come back to? Yes. If we're going to have income to pay for things? Yes. In the last two weeks, one million Californians have filed for unemployment. Pennsylvania, Nevada, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island also bled badly. Ten states reported more than 100,000 new unemployment claims. Hardest hit sectors, 
the hospitality industry, travel and tourism, and retail. Economist Diane Swank warns reality dwarfs the official numbers. This is such an unprecedented surge, and those people applying for unemployment insurance, the sites actually froze. In many states, applying for benefits is a full-time job. Julie Griffith, a laid-off dental hygienist in Boulder, Colorado. I believe that I had to file five separate times to finally get into the system. In Georgia, Labor Department offices are closed, its website overwhelmed. 110,000 people tried filing yesterday. In Washington, D.C. tomorrow morning, the House will vote on a $2 trillion stimulus lifeline, among many provisions extending unemployment and direct payments up to $1,200 to most Americans, like Marie Silkridge Ashford. Her one-woman operation, the Cheesecake Boutique, closed today. The government's direct payment to her would take at least three weeks. She needs it now. It's just not knowing, um, not really having any foundation, being able to make a plan to move forward because you're not sure where your source of income will be coming from. This is the envelope thousands of jobless Georgians are waiting for. Inside is a state-issued debit card worth up to $365 a week. It's a fraction of what most of them need. Nora? Incredible. All right, Mark, thank you. And now to Washington, where for the last year, the president has presided over an historically low unemployment rate. But the numbers today are the first sign that will no longer be the case. President Trump says the jobless numbers are nobody's fault and that he will soon outline new guidelines to get some people back to work. Paula Reed reports tonight from the White House. President Trump today confronted the historic rise in unemployment. I heard it could be 6 million, could be 7 million. It's 3.3 or 3.2, but it's a lot of jobs. But I think we'll come back very strong the sooner we get back to work. You know, every day that we stay out, it gets harder to bring it back very quickly. Sources tell CBS News the president is frustrated that a tanking economy may hurt his chances of re-election. In a letter to the nation's governors, Mr. Trump said he will categorize counties as high risk, medium risk or low risk in an effort to encourage local leaders to reopen their businesses. I'm concerned about the uh, desire of the president to ignore potentially the science um, to try to do something that I know he's, you know, has a desire to do. Already there's a dispute within the auto industry about when to resume work. Ford announced today it will reopen some of its plants as early as April 6th, while Toyota and Fiat Chrysler extended their shutdowns until later next month. In a rare interview, the chairman of the Federal Reserve acknowledged the country may already be in a recession, but did say there is reason for hope. If we get the, uh, get the virus spread under control uh, fairly quickly, then economic activity can resume. On Saturday, the president will head to Norfolk, Virginia, to see the U.S. Navy medical ship The Comfort as it heads to New York City to help with the coronavirus response. Nora. All right, Paula, thank you. And on that note tonight, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, says hospitalizations in the state went up 40 percent. New York has nearly half of all the coronavirus infections here in the U.S. 911 operators in New York City say they're on pace to receive as many 7,000 calls just today. A hospital in the borough of Queens is now at the center of the crisis, and Mola Lange is there. Mola? 
Well, Nora, in just 24 hours in New York City, 100 people have died due to the virus. Across the state, 1,200 people are currently in ICU. Medical staff, from doctors to nurses to EMTs, they're struggling to keep up with the influx of patients. And nowhere is that illustrated more than this hospital here. Today, the crush of patients at Elmhurst Hospital was so overwhelming that 50 additional workers were sent there to help. Some of the sick are being transported elsewhere. This after 13 people died in just 24 hours at Elmhurst. EMT worker Anthony Almojera. From the perspective of being properly prepared, the training is there, the equipment is not. They all have COVID. This doctor's video posted by the New York Times illustrates the bleak picture. I don't really care if I get in trouble for speaking to the media. I want people to know that this is bad. People are dying. We don't have the tools that we need in the emergency department and in the hospital to take care of them. Makeshift morgues are being set up at city hospitals. Across the country, more than 1,000 have already died. A review by the Washington Post found that 65% were over 70 years old and 60% were men. In Michigan, this emergency nurse sounded the alarm. Honest, I didn't choose nursing or the healthcare field to not help people, and that's exactly what the choices are that they're giving us. They're giving us no choice but to help only the people that they think that can survive. But the sick keep coming. In Chicago, a blunt warning from the city's mayor. We could be expecting upwards of 40,000 hospitalizations in the coming weeks. In Miami, more than a dozen crew members were escorted off this cruise ship by people wearing protective gear. Back in New York, healthcare workers are continuing to express their concerns over worsening conditions. We are on the front lines of this, doing it to the point of exhaustion. We're gonna run out of these masks unless we get some type of emergency supply. Well, testing here at Elmhurst Hospital will continue in the tents that you see behind me there. Uh, that'll pick back up tomorrow morning. But that concern that you heard in that EMT's voice, that's real. Their union tells us that 400 of their uniformed members have been diagnosed with COVID-19. That is 10% of their workforce, Nora. Mola, thank you. Joining us now is someone who knows what our medical providers are facing on the front lines. Dr. Megan Ranney is an emergency room physician at Brown University. Dr. Ranney, thank you. Thank you, Nora. You know, we know our healthcare workers are like soldiers. What's it like to work under these circumstances? We are scared, we are stressed, and we're worried about what comes next and about our ability to take care of our patients and our communities as well as our ability to take care of ourselves. Doctor, this is a difficult question, but what are some of the doctors and nurses and colleagues that you work with doing to prepare for the case that they may themselves catch COVID-19? Nora, I already have dozens, literally dozens of friends in emergency medicine across the country who have been infected by COVID-19. A couple of them have been hospitalized. A couple are in intensive care. My friends and colleagues are doing things like recording videos for their kids, writing letters to their spouses or their kids or their grandkids, making sure that their wills are in order. Because we know that if we end up getting admitted to the hospital, we, like everyone else with COVID-19, would be isolated from our family and friends and may not have the chance to say goodbye in person. That's, uh, that's hard to hear that. 
it is unbelievably difficult. You know, as healthcare providers, we run towards disaster. We are trained and ready to help anyone who needs it. We're not used to our helping putting us at such risk. What are you seeing at your hospital in terms of COVID-19 patients and supplies? My hospital, like every other hospital across the country, is day by day seeing dramatic increases in the number of patients with symptoms consistent with COVID-19. We are also seeing dropping numbers of supplies. A lot of the supplies that were intended for hospitals like mine have been diverted to New York. And what is something that people at home can do to help their local healthcare providers? So the first and biggest thing that people at home can do is truly to stay home. I know how difficult social distancing is, but if you can stay home, you can stop the spread of this virus and allow us in healthcare to better help you. Well, doctor, we can't say thank you enough to you and to everyone who is caring for Americans and all around the world. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. Tonight, the nation's largest healthcare system, the Department of Veterans Affairs, is seeing an onslaught of coronavirus patients. The VA cares for millions of elderly veterans, and it has now confirmed nearly 500 cases, a 60% spike since Tuesday. The retired Rear Admiral, who runs the VA Center in Philadelphia, spoke with our Jim Axelrod about the urgent need for beds and ventilators. We are looking at our surge capacity. The challenge here in Philadelphia is stark. Serving a population of 55,000 vets, they've got 102 beds. We are able to expand by 50 plus beds. Still 152 beds. Is that enough for what you anticipate happening here? We're not sure. With the average veteran served by the VA older than 60, many also have underlying medical conditions. This is a population that is especially vulnerable to respiratory issues from coronavirus. Do you have enough ventilators? So we have ventilators on order. I take that to mean you don't have enough right now. We put an order in in anticipation that, you know, 30 or 40 percent of the veterans we see may need some ventilatory support. Are you anticipating a crisis? I'm not. I certainly can speak for patients. And when they get sick, they get really sick. What is different about the population of VA patients from the general public? Our typical patient might have heart disease and peripheral arterial disease. So we worry when they need care that they're going to be a challenging patient to look after. And, and some of them really are. Does 150 beds seem like enough for 50,000 plus veterans? I hope it is. I'm worried that it's not. If there is a spike in numbers, the VA would have to fulfill another part of its mission. In times of national emergency, taking care of the general public as well. Jim Axelrod, CBS News, Philadelphia. And as we're talking about our military, there are new orders from the Pentagon that mean all U.S. overseas military personnel will have to stay put for the next 60 days to slow the spread of coronavirus. 90,000 troops who were scheduled to deploy or come home will be affected. There are currently almost 300 confirmed cases throughout the military. There is still much more news ahead on tonight's CBS Evening News. Some of America's most vulnerable workers in this outbreak are grocery workers. What's being done to keep them and you safe from the virus? You've probably noticed it across America. Downtowns have become ghost towns. Streets are mostly empty, but not the aisles at supermarkets where workers are needed now more than ever. 
A number of them are now testing positive for the coronavirus. Errol Barnett looks at what's being done to keep them and you safe. Well, thank you for all you're doing. Thank you, Jeff. Joe Calileo is CEO of Wake Fern, a grocery store cooperative of nearly 80,000 workers, including ones who tested positive for coronavirus. Our associates take very seriously their role to feed people, right? That's what we do. That's the business we're in. With staffers working alongside the public every day, Colaleo says keeping employees and customers safe is their top priority. We do regular cleaning all the time, all day long, to protect the environment. It's sobering business for the entire supermarket industry. Frequent cleaning, sneeze guards between cashiers, and floor markers encouraging social distancing have all become the norm. Some stores even offering rubber gloves. I was not about to just grab that basket with my bare hands. Employees are working overtime, in some ways jeopardizing their own health to keep shelves stocked as quickly as they can. But grocers like Gristiti CEO John Katsimatidis says there is no shortage. For how long should people be purchasing food for? Oh, you should have enough merchandise for a week or two weeks, but uh, you shouldn't be buying three months or four months. Assistant manager Eddie Ortiz calls his staff frontline warriors. They're courageous people. They didn't hesitate for one minute to stay and meet the needs of the public. Thank you. Errol Barnett, CBS News, New York. We've been saying here at CBS, we're all in this together. And we found a great example of that right here in Washington. A community has come together to help workers in two different industries. The idea came to Elena Tompkins at three in the morning. So I called a few friends in the restaurant business and said, hey, what do you think about providing some meals for hospitals? Tompkins was worried about restaurants in her community, so she began raising money for large food orders and thought, who better to receive them than those on the front lines? In a week, we have provided over 700 meals to our local hospitals and medical centers. 700 meals yes. in a week? In a week. Thank you. What has the response been from the hospital workers, nurses, doctors? It's been overwhelming. There have been a lot of tears, happy tears, a little bit of disbelief. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And gratitude. Alexis White is a nurse at Sibley Memorial Hospital. Like I just literally called and said, hey, someone's here that's going to be delivering coffee and pastries to us. They're like, what? To me? To us? Why? <laughs> and they're so thankful, so overwhelmed with gratitude. So far, Feed the Fight has delivered to 17 different medical sites across the D.C. area. And Tompkins says they'll keep going as long as they're needed. People are hurting and any relief that they can get is so appreciated. Absolutely, and the fact that they know that there's a whole community surrounding them and throwing arms around them when we're not allowed to actually throw arms around them and doing anything they can, I think it's what's keeping people going. Feed the Fight has supported 16 restaurants here in the Washington area, including my husband's, and groups in other states have started similar programs, all with one goal, supporting our community restaurants and feeding our local heroes. That is tonight's CBS Evening News. I'm Nora O'Donnell in Washington. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Stay safe and good night.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.